As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray uh, with me. Uh, Father in heaven, um, your word, you say, is a light uh, to us and a lamp to us. Um, We know what that means. We know that we're to see through it, by it, from it. Um, We're to see you, God. So help us to see you this morning as we come to this passage of scripture and to see um, what you have for us, what our lives are to be and how we're to really live. So I pray that you would take this passage of scripture Even as we read it, that you would um, bring it home to us. That this word might, the deepest, richest sense, live in us. And shape us and form us into being the people you have called us and call us to be. That we might be known as your friends, that we might have your joy. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to John, Gospel of John, chapter 15, please. John, chapter 15. I want to read verses 1 through 17. John, chapter 15, please. This is uh, Jesus speaking. I'm the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends for all that I have heard from my father. I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruits and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love One another. And then together, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Um, At least in my own uh, liturgical life, this is what I call a free Sunday. (laughs) By that I mean, I finished last week with what I had intended to work through, uh, and then Advent begins next Sunday. So this is kind of 
a free one for me. I, I didn't have any particular place, if you will, to go. So I thought, as I kind of hinted last Sunday, that there's more to this chapter 15 than we were able to get to as we were thinking about Jesus <clears throat> being the vine. You remember I'm talking through, I've been talking through these I am statements of Jesus once again. And this is the point of everything we do every Sunday, really, is dealing with the identity of Jesus. Who is he really? In fact, as we begin Advent next Sunday and walk ourselves through the sort of the church year from, from Advent to to Christmas and um, then to Epiphany and and Lent and Holy Week and and um, the Ascension of Jesus and then Pentecost that that whole kind of those those sort of seasons, if you will, are times of celebration for us uh, are markers uh, and they, what they mark for us is the identity of Jesus. This is who he is. At Advent, we ask the question, who is he? Who's this one who's coming? And uh, and then even we, since he's already come, we kind of push our way through to the second advent and we begin to think about who is this one who came and who is still then to come. And then Christmas, who is this one who is born, this God with us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Epiphany, that's the question. Wow, who is he? Who's this one who's come? And during the season of Lent, what did he do? And at Holy Week, how did he know that, what did he do and how do we really know he accomplished what he set out to accomplish. Well, of course, by his resurrection that we celebrate on Easter. And then he ascends. Well, what's he doing now? What's he doing now? It's the most important thing. What's he doing now? The ascended, ruling and reigning Jesus. And then he sends his spirit upon us. And we ask the question, well, because of who he is, what we should be doing now by the power of his spirit. So, so that's kind of kind of the landscape, kind of the Christians think about year after year after year after year, how we kind of mark our time if you if you will. But, but that's the important question, isn't it? Always, who is Jesus? And when John writes his gospel, that's the important question. He begins uh, by saying, in the beginning was the word and the word was with what God and the word was God. And then the word became flesh and dwelt among us, meaning this one who has come to be among us is God, God in the flesh. And then he goes on at the end of the middle, I guess, of that first chapter, verse 18. He says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And so this one who is God, who is God with us, the Son of God, has come to make known to us the Father. And throughout this, this question, Jesus said, well, do you know where I'm from? Do you know where I'm from? And he caps that off by saying, you know, my kingdom is not of this world. Well, what world? Where did you, where are you from, Jesus. And the question always, isn't he the one from Nazareth? Isn't he Mary's son, Joseph, the carpenter, his father? Aren't these his brothers and sisters? And they kept wondering about his origin. And so that's the question. And so Jesus, throughout, as we read John, uh, announces who he is, identifies who he is. And you remember last Sunday, I, I used this expression from John Stott's little book, Basic Christianity, that I've, I've thought about for years that when Jesus makes his identity known with these I am statements, he gives us flashes of breathtaking egocentricity. You know, we, we see it in a flash and it's breathtaking. Who can say things like I'm the bread of life? I mean, who can really say that? Who can really say I'm the light of the world, you see? Who can really say I'm the door? There's no way into the presence of God that should go through me. I mean, who, who can make those, those statements when we hear them should take our breath away? 
Who can say that, you see? Who can say I'm the good shepherd that you're lost without me? I'm God who's come to rescue my people. Who can really say that, you see? Who can say I'm the resurrection and the life? Who can say that I'm the way, the truth, and the life? No one comes to the Father except through me. And then who can say I'm the true vine? I hope, and please do this, just, just write those down. Seven little statements, you know, just memorize them. Put them in your head. I don't know what you what goes through your head when you're on your way to help somebody you have no idea how to help. Well, it helps me to think that Jesus, who is with me, is the bread of life. He'll give to them what they need. That he's the light. And he'll shed light on the situation in some way, somehow, right? That he's, he's really the door. I'm not the door, <laughs> you know? He's the door. I, I have to... Somehow, we have to go through him. He's the good shepherd. I'm not. He's the good shepherd. He'll help them. He'll lead them. He'll find them. He'll, he'll fix them up, if you will. Not me. Um, right? He's, he's the resurrection and the life. Not me. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Not me. He's the true vine, you see. I mean, I think of these things go through my mind all the time. You know, when I'm laying on a table and they're shooting radiation into my body, I'm thinking... He's the bread of life. That really helps me. To know he's the light of the world, you see. I can see, I can understand this situation by way of him. Um, he's the door. He's the good shepherd. He'll help me. He's the resurrection and the life. I might die, but I won't. I'll always live because I'm in him. He's the way, the truth, and the life, right? He's the true vine. If I'm united, if I'm in union with him, that's the point of it, then life flows through me. His life is in me, and I'll bear good fruit. The fruit that resembles him. You see, I, put these things in your mind and allow them to, to occupy your thoughts at various times. But it will bring you uh, good comfort and good hope. And it will encourage you to know these things about Jesus. We always want to know things about ourselves. <laughs> it's good to know things about Jesus, you see. That really helps us. A great deal. So what I want to do, if God will help me, is to pick up uh, today just more of this chapter. I have to tell you, uh, my family knows this, that this is one of the chapters I've kicked around for decades. I, I, this just fascinates me. I, one of the frustrations for me is that, is that even every time I think about this passage, I, I, I'm always left going, but there, I, I haven't really gotten it all yet. I mean, it's just fascinating to me, the relationships that exist uh, in this passage of ideas and things concerning who Jesus is and, and how we're then uh, to live and especially to pray. And so I want to take, take that up. Just by way, quickly, of, of review, uh, Jesus in this statement is saying, I'm the true vine. Again, bells and whistles going off to any good Israelite who realizes that Israel was the vine and the vineyard of God. And yet... The prophets announced time and time again that Israel was unfaithful, thus unfruitful. They were to bear the fruit of God, and they didn't. They were to resemble uh, God. They were to glorify him. They were to be the people of God. 
And now Jesus comes and says, I'm the true vine as opposed to that one. And I'm the true vine. And so I'm going to embody really everything that Israel was to be. I'm going to show what the true son of God is like, what the true people of God are to be like. And so Jesus was the faithful son. He was the faithful Israel, if you will. He, he bore the right fruit. Everything about Jesus glorified, reflected God. And so now he comes and he says, if you want to be the people of God, you need to be attached to me like a branch is to the vine. If you want to be fruitful, you have to belong to me. You have to be joined together with me. You have to be in union with me. And so the the key expression here in this passage really is in verse 4, where Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. And to abide means to stay, to remain. It, it's really, in, in, a, in a biblical sense, what we might call a covenantal word. It means to dwell with God. Your abode is your house. We don't use that language very much. But you could say, that's my abode, that's my house, that's where I live, you see. And you abide in your abode. And so, Jesus is saying, abide in me. Live. Get your life from live. This is where you dwell. This is where God is with you and you are with God. When God says, I'm your God and you're my people, Jesus would put it, abide in me and I in you. You know, that sense of, of living and dwelling. He's, he's already spoken about this in chapter 14. Look in verse 15, John 14, verse 15. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I'll come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you'll see me, because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Then verse 23, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. That's the sense of abiding in him and he in us. We're at home in with each other by way of his word and spirit. And that, that sounds a little mystical and it feels that way. <laughs> but there's this sense of that, that this is where we live, you see. We, we're to abide in him and, and he uh, in us. They've just seen an illustration of someone who doesn't abide in Jesus. And that was Judas. That even though Judas had hung around... And even though if you would have hung around with the disciples when Jesus, Judas was hanging around with them, you would probably say, well, he's a believer too. Sounds like it. He looks like it. He's hanging around all the disciples. But we see that he wasn't. That he was not a branch that would bear fruit. He would wither and he'd be cast off, you see. they just seen this. In fact, I don't know if this is what that led John to these words exactly, but John observed a similar thing in the early church of those who had claimed to be disciples and then weren't, that is, claimed to be branches in the vine, but 
proved themselves not to be. So when he writes his first epistle in First John in chapter 2, verse 18, he says, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they never, uh, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued or remained or abided. They would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that all are not of us. That's what John's saying. He says, well, there are folks in our church that had claimed to be believers in Jesus, but they didn't stay. He doesn't mean they didn't stay in our local church. They went to another one that had better music or whatever, a cuter pastor. Uh, they just, uh, uh, they, he meant they, they, they didn't go anywhere. I mean, they, they left, if you will. And that leaving proved they weren't really of us. They weren't really a branch in the vine. And so Jesus had spoken of this abiding, you see. And as we mentioned last week, how does one come to abide in Jesus as a branch in a vine? Well, first we said it's a work of God. First um, Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 says that this is from God, that is, that we have received this salvation. And we acknowledge that it's evidenced in us by faith, I mean real faith. What we used to say when we were kids, if we made a promise, we would say, you better mean it. And so when we talk about by faith, we mean you really mean it, that it shapes your life, that that, that you leave everything behind, or at least that your desire and your hope that you leave everything behind that isn't of Christ, and you'll take up everything that is, that he's your new identity, that you live and abide, if you will, in him. And, and, And so it's evidenced by faith. And we see that works or fruits always follow faith. We know that we're saved by grace through faith. This is the gift of God so that none of us would boast. Ephesians 2, chapter 8. But we know that verse 10, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 8. But chapter 2 in Ephesians, verse 10, says that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. And so always, you see, these works follow not precede, but follow. We're not saved because of the works that we do, but because we come to him by faith, what that means is that now we identify, we abide in Jesus. We're attached to him as a branch to a vine, so our life is from him. And so what flows from us, from this vine, should resemble the vine. That's the whole point of the metaphor. It should resemble the vine. You should know, you should be able to look at the fruits and go, well, I know the vine, right? And so that's what he's saying here. That the fruit follows, that attached to the vine by the work of God, received by faith, then this then exhibits, if you will, something, fruit, that resembles, that resembles the vine. Now the question then is, what is this fruit? Well, Jesus doesn't say exactly. <laughs> and so it's a bit ambiguous. So let me give you a broad stroke with it, or at least a number of options. Uh, I, I want to include all of them in here just in case, if you will. Um, he's speaking both generally and specifically here. 
uh, generally in the sense that he's speaking about all disciples, all disciples that are to abide in Jesus and him in them. And, and uh, they're to all disciples would would be like branches in this vine uh, tested and bear fruits. You see all disciples. And so somehow this fruit of all that all disciples bear should be related to or resemble Jesus, glorify him, reflect him, you see, because it's fruit from that vine. But he's also speaking directly to these particular disciples. I mean, this is a very intimate moment. This is a very intimate time. He's speaking directly to these, and they would be thinking, what fruits are we to bear as the disciples of Jesus? And so on the one hand, just as regular old disciples like us, they should bear this fruit of whatever it comes from them to resemble them. But, but it's bigger than that for them, Right? Because these original disciples, they're going to take this word and take it out and it's going to bear fruit. So here's my options, all of which I think are likely to be true. One is that the fruit that disciples of Jesus bear because they're attached to him is his character, what we would call Christ-likeness, what we would the Bible would call being conformed to his image. If you're attached to Jesus and fruit, something comes out of you, whatever comes out of you should look like Jesus, right? So Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians in chapter 5. Jesus speaks like that in this passage when he says that we're to obey his commandments and then he summarizes his commandments into a commandment that we're to love one another as he's loved us. He had previously said that that's the mark of a disciple. That the whole world will know that we're his disciples if we love each other. John chapter 13. So fruit is the character, the life that comes from us that looks like Jesus, which can be summarized as loving one another as he's loved us. He says, if you do that, people see that, they'll see me. That's the first thing. But the second thing is that these disciples of Jesus were to make disciples. That's the fruit, if you will, that would abide. He said that you're to bear fruit and your fruit should abide. That is, it, the fruit should, should live on, you see. And in John chapter 17 and verse 20, as Jesus is praying, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. You see, the fruits of these original disciples, well, it's us and all believers. We all, we're we're the fruits of of these disciples who were attached to Jesus originally because it's through their word, they took it, spread it, it's through their word that we believe. That's Jesus' point. I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, you see. And so... I think fruit is Christ-likeness, loving one another as he's loved us. We, we, people know that we're his, his disciples, but also disciple-making, that from them and thus from us, the Great Commission even, applying to them particularly, from them through us, that we're, we should see disciples. What's the fruits of Grace Church? The fruit of Grace Church should be disciples who look like Jesus, who love as he loved, 
And so if we're not seeing that in us and through us, then we've been cut off. We're not real branches, if you will. We should see that in our own lives and, and in the work, if you will, that comes from us. All right? Are we together with that? I hope that's not too sketchy for you. But, uh, but whatever fruit this is, it should look like Jesus. It should resemble him. People should see the fruit and go, oh, I know where that's from. It's from Jesus. It belongs, it belongs to him. So what I want to do, if God will help me, is, is, to, is to make some, um, show some relationships here. Um, first this. We see a direct relationship between abiding in Jesus and bearing fruit. Verse 2, he says, Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, you see. And then verse 4, he says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So, in order to bear fruit... Fits with the metaphor very nicely. You've got to be attached to the vine. You've got to abide in him. So we we recognize that. Um, We also see then that bearing fruit um, is related to being a disciple of Jesus. Verse 8, he says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciple. So we could say it like this. If you don't bear fruit at all, then you're not a disciple of Jesus. Or we can say it positively, it's a little more hopeful, that disciples of Jesus bear fruit. Right? That's just true. If we're really attached to the vine, the fruit will come. If it doesn't, there is no fruit, he says, then in the, that, that branch will get burned. If there is fruit, he says, oh, that's good, so good that he'll clean us up even more, cleanse us even more, prune us even more, so that we can bear more fruit, you see. And so we should see over the course of one's life in Christ, more fruit, more likeness to Christ, you see. More likeness to Christ. Then we see in verse 7, that there's a relationship between abiding in Jesus and his words abiding in us. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. So, so there's a relationship between remaining, living in Jesus and his words being in us. And no surprise there. Jesus identifies very closely with his words. We'll talk about that in a minute. And then we see there's a relationship as well in verse 7 between abiding in Jesus, his words abiding in us, and our prayers being answered with something other than a no. Right? Right? You, get, you don't get the impression that he's saying he's going to answer no with this one. Uh, that's an option, of course. <laughs> happens. Uh, and it's good that it happens. In the same way it's good that parents say no to their children at times and uh, other situations like that. But he says, if you ask, I'm sorry, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask Whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. That's a very decisive uh, statement. Then notice, too, in verse 10, that there's a relationship between keeping Jesus' commandments 
and abiding in his love. In verse 9, we see the relationship between abiding in Jesus and abiding in his love. And in verse 10, we see a relationship between keeping his commandments and abiding in his love. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. So, So we're to live in Jesus' love. Well, that makes sense, right? We're going to live in him and he is love. Well, that's home. Home base is the love of Jesus for us. Um, But then notice he says, here's how you continue to abide in my love. Obey my commandments. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. And then notice that there's a relationship between, in verses 10 and 12, between loving one another and abiding in his love. Verse 10 says, if you keep my commandments, so then you'll abide in my love. So we ask the question, well, what's your commandments? In verse 12, he says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. So there's a relationship between obeying his commandments, that is loving each other, and abiding in his love. And this all results then, we see, first in joy, chronologically first, that is, this is how he puts it. Enjoy these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. And then we realize that all of this means that we're Jesus' friends. Verse 13, greater love is no one than this than some way to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I've called you friends for all that I've heard from my father I've made known to you. Lots of connections, lots of strings, if you will. Let me tie them up like this by speaking first of all of this and its relationship between prayer and fruit bearing. Between prayer and fruit bearing. We realize that if we're attached to the vine, we'll bear fruit. That's what it means. This Christ likeness, this making disciples, whichever context we're speaking about, whether it's individual or church. So, What's that relationship then with, 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 with prayer? Well, uh, notice, I just run back through some of these. Um, well, I won't do that. Um, so let me ask this question. From this context then, what's it telling us about praying and fruit bearing? When I say from this context, I, I don't mean that some other teaching about prayer in the Bible may contradict this. Simply that this isn't exhaustive. You know, if you were going to write a book on prayer, you would include this passage, but it might include other passages as well. And they would round all this out and together they would formulate a big systematic understanding of prayer. I'm not going to do that. I just want to take this passage, this context. What's it tell us about prayer and what's it tell us about fruit bearing? You'll notice this statement in verse 7. And if you're a Christian and you pray, this passage is, 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 is both your delight and, 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 and your difficulty. Uh, because it's a great promise, but you look at your own prayer life and you say, but I don't think it works. Right? Because I ask for a lot of things and I don't see them. And so Jesus, though, says, if you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And I think part of our difficulty is that we take that out of its context and we just hear, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. It's sort of like the little kid that goes to his dad and says, just say yes to what I'm going to ask you, right? 
And as a dad, you always know you're in trouble at that point. And you might as well just start out by saying no. Right? Uh, because you're not, probably not going to say yes. <laughs> because if you were, it wouldn't have been given to you that way. And so that isn't it at all. In fact, John Calvin puts it like this. He says, Jesus does not give us leave to form wishes according to our own fancy. God would do what was ill-fitted uh, to promote our welfare if he were so indulgent and so ready to yield to us. For we know well that men often indulge in foolish and extravagant desires. But here, he limits the wishes of, his, of, of people to the rule of praying in a right manner, and that rule is confirmed by the connection in which the words stand. For he means that his people will, his people will or desire not riches or honors or anything of that nature which the flesh foolishly desires, but the vital sap of the Holy Spirit which enables them to bear fruit. See, that's the context here. Jesus is saying, if, if you abide in me and I abide in you, you, you'll bear fruit. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you'll bear fruit. If you abide in my love, as I abide in the Father's love, you'll bear fruit, you see. And so, in the midst of all that, he says, pray. Why? Well, he puts it very directly in verse 8. He says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. Well, how are we going to do that? In our own strength? No. By abiding in the vine. How do we abide in the vine? Well, we abide in the vine, <laughs> in part, by praying. By praying, you see. And he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you see. Well, why do we need to abide in Jesus Live in him to have our prayers answered. Well, first, because we have to ask the question, upon what basis will the Father ever hear us? And the answer is, only through Jesus. I mean, we use that little expression at the end of our prayers usually. We should use it in the beginning of our prayers. Uh, in Jesus' name, Right? I remember as a kid, I thought that always meant the end. I was always surprised when I watched a movie that at the end of the movie, it didn't say in Jesus' name. It just said the end. I thought, it, you know, they were synonymous expressions uh, because that's what people said at the end of their prayers. Uh, and then I realized, well, there's a reason we say that at the end of our prayers. It isn't some sort of magical thing. Uh, it, it simply is an expression of, of uh, the basis upon which we we come to God in the first place. When we say, I pray in Jesus' name, uh, we're saying, I don't pray in my own name. If I just came in the name of Bill, you wouldn't recognize me. Because the only way I, anyone can come into your presence is by being righteous. And the only righteous one is Jesus. And so I'm coming in him. He, he's going to, he's the one who enters this gate. So he's the door. I'm going to go through him. I'm going to go through Jesus. And so I come in Jesus' name. What that means is I come not on the basis of my own merit, not on the basis of my own goodness, not on the basis of anything in me. I come in everything in him. And so I come in the name of Jesus. So I, I come under the cross. I've said before, I love praying under that cross because it's just a good reminder to me in a visual of why I'm even thinking that God's going to hear me as I pray. 
It's because I come into the cross. I come in the name of Jesus. I come by his blood. I come because I'm one forgiven by him. I come because he has bought my place, if you will. He's earned it for me. And so I come uh, in him, in the name of Jesus. So he says, first we have to abide in him. And then the question is, why do his words have to abide in us? For us to be able to ask whatever we wish and it will be given. It's because his words are what frame our wishes. His word is what informs, what directs, what defines our wishes, you see. And if I know his word, then I know what pleases him. His word here is that I bear fruit. And so if that word abides in me, then when I pray, I will be praying that fruits is born from me, from us. I'll be praying that whatever happens through us looks like Jesus. And he says, all right, I'll do that. I'll do that. Because you see, his word... Is, is working in us. You, you know what the author of Hebrews says about, about the word of God. It's, it's living and active. How does he put it? Hebrews in chapter uh, 4 and verse 11, verse 12. He says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from its sight. You see, the, the word of God is at work in us. And it should be working in us in such a way causing us to desire to glorify Jesus, to reflect him, to bear this fruit, you see. And so if his words are abiding in us, they're working in us. So what will our wishes be? Whatever we wish, whatever we desire, will be to please him and to glorify him, you see. In fact, Peter picks up this as well about this power of this word working in us in First Peter in chapter 1 and verse 23, in the middle of a sentence, he says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. You see, the word of God is living and it's working in us. And then you know this expression for, uh, he quotes the, the Old Testament, All flesh is like grass and its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. You see, when this good news comes to us, it transforms us. And as this word lives in us, our heart's desire then becomes what? To glorify Jesus. To resemble him. And so he says, all right, ask me. Ask me. Before you start getting about it, ask me. And what's this fruit? Well, it's at least this, and this is the big one, to love each other as I've loved you. As I read from the passage in in Colossians this morning. This is the word of the Lord, by the way. If you have a red letter edition to the Bible, it's only partially correct. All the words are in red. All right? They're all the words of the Lord. He says, We're to put on as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if... One has a complaint against the other, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Who does that sound like? 
Right? That's putting on Christ, you see. And so, when we're praying, we should pray that we look like this. That we become this. And Jesus says, I'll do it. Now, our difficulty, of course, is we expect him to do it easily and quickly. Right? We think that we should just pray it and then boom, there we are, this compassionate person and all of that. No, 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 no. It takes time. And it takes circumstances. And it takes his word washing us and growing in us and growing in us. And it takes application of this circumstance and that circumstance. See, we never know that we're not compassionate until we get into that circumstance that's going to make us be more compassionate than we were the last time. Or more kind than we were the last time. Or more patient than we were the last time. And so those circumstances will keep coming up and we'll keep getting pressed against the edge of that. And so what do we need to keep doing? Praying. We keep come up coming up against these things and rather than just gritting our teeth and say I'm better than this I can do this is to say Lord I'm not better than this I can't do this you're asking me to be patient in a situation I never thought I'd have to be patient in before and so please now help me he says thank you for asking all right well it's gonna be maybe painful (laughs) and it's going to be inconvenient that's the definition of patience but I'll help you so Keep praying. Ask whatever you will. And it will be done. That is in the sense of bearing this fruit. You see, we're to pray about all kinds of things. Philippians 4 tells us that we're to pray about everything with thanksgiving. But what's the promise? And I'll just read it so you don't think I'm guessing. In Philippians in chapter 4. What's the promise that we receive? That everything we ask for will be done for us? No. Philippians 4 says... Rejoice in the Lord, verse 4, always. And again I say rejoice, let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. (laughs) He doesn't say you'll get everything you've asked for at this point in time. because you're No, he'll say you'll have peace. What's the peace? The peace is knowing that God knows about the situation. And you say, well, he knew about it anyway. He's God. Yeah, but now you know that he knows. You see, if we go through life without praying, it's like being in the same room with someone and never talking to them. You may think he's thinking what I'm thinking, but maybe not. And but with God, you see, it, when it's, it's the praying, it's the consciousness on our part of laying it out before him and saying, God, I, I know that you're there and I know that you hear me. Here is this situation. Now, once we pray like that, this is harder than it is to say, harder to do than it is to say. But once we lay it out like that, there should be a measure of peace because we've consciously laid it out in the presence of God. And and we say, I know that you know this. And I, I know that you're wise. And I know that you're powerful. And I know that you love me. So I'm going to trust that you're going to take this situation and do that which is good. That's the peace that we should have. That's the promise here.
But the promise over here is, if you want to bear fruit, <laughs> then ask me, and I'll help you. I'll, I'll say yes. But keep trusting me, and keep asking me. That's why you know that wonderful expression in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, ask. But you know, you've read enough about this and heard enough sermons on this passage, that you know it means ask and keep on asking, and seek and keep on seeking, and knock and keep on knocking. You, you know that. It's a perpetual thing. It's a persistent thing. And it isn't persistence because God doesn't want to give it to you because in the same passage, he says, no, 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 God's not like you. He gives. So trust him. Keep keep on. This is That's what it means to abide in him. It's a remaining. It's a continuing. It isn't like, well, I, I prayed once. I'm done. Or I, you know, I pray to be patient, so I guess I will be. Well, keep praying to be patient because you're going to keep needing his help to be patient. It's not like we get better at this. It's not like, well, finally I'm good at loving, so I'm done with that. I'm going to get onto the next box to check off. No, 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 no. Loving is deeper than you ever know. Being compassionate is deeper than you ever know. Being, being, being patient is deeper than you ever know. And, and so when we abide in him, you see, he keeps taking us deeper and deeper and deeper into what it really means because he really knows. And so we have to keep asking, oh, I thought I was patient. Help me to be patient. I thought I was compassionate. Help me to be compassionate. You see, because we realize, oh, there's more to this than I ever imagined. There's more to the character of Jesus than I ever imagined. So flippantly we read, greater love has no man than this, and he gives his life for his friend. We go, of course. Have you ever done that? So the depth of love, you see, is, is really deeper than we might know. And so the only way to get there is to have his help. And so he says, ask me. And then this, he says, now I'm telling you this so that my joy might be in you and your joy might be complete. We have an expression and I understand why we use it. And you may have heard it and it's this. The expression is, God is more concerned about our holiness than our happiness. And and we get what that means. What it means is that he's willing to make us unhappy in the moment to produce holiness in us. We go, all right, that's fine. But it isn't really true. (laughs) He is concerned, really, perhaps not so much about our happiness, but about our joy. And he knows there's no joy without holiness. And so he'll do whatever to produce holiness, to conform us to the image of Jesus, because he knows that's the only way to real joy. There is no joy, for instance, in living selfishly. There just simply isn't. When I do weddings, I always say that. I always say to them, they're not listening. Maybe somebody else is, but the couple, I always say, you see, if you want to live a life filled with joy, don't live selfishly. Don't live for yourself. If you do that, you'll never know real joy. You'll be miserable. He doesn't leave us, God doesn't, in misery, doesn't want to. So he says, abide in me, pray that the fruit of being conformed to the image of Jesus is formed in you. And you know what the end result will be? Joy. 
oh, love will test you more than you can ever imagine. And there might be some unhappiness. But if you persevere and pray, at the end of the day, what you'll know is joy. And not just regular old garden variety joy, but the joy that Jesus has. And you know that breathtaking expression for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame. We read that again flippantly all the time. We go, yeah, 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 I get what that means. No, we don't. I mean, it's, it's just a, that's just one of those expressions that really does take your breath away when you think about it. But you know, really, it's true. You know that when we enter a situation to love, to really love, and we disregard all the pain of it, if you will, that's happening to us at the moment, we do know that at the end of it, there's real joy. Part of the joy is we've come to know Jesus. And part of the joy is that he's worked his love in us and we understand what he meant when he went to the cross for the joy that was set before him. And then you see, God calls us his friends. That's a wild expression. No, not buddy-buddy friends, you know. That, not, I mean, he's still God, right? You know, I mean, he's still, he's still God. But what, he's, what he means is that you're not a servant, well, you are, but not a servant like a slave servant that doesn't know anything about the master, just gets orders, and then you have to go do stuff, and you don't know quite why. Now you know why. Now you know why. All this is happening so that you'll have joy. The very joy of Jesus. This is a wonderful psalm. It's my favorite, and I'm done after this. But um, Psalms, one of them, 25. Um, Verse 14. I don't have time to go through the whole deal, but verse 14. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. Right? Now, if you have a Bible with a footnote on the word friendship and you read down to the footnote, it could say that could be translated as the secret counsel. See, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, those who trust him, those who are branches in the vine, you see? And he says, I'll, I'll let you know my covenant. What's that? My covenant is how I'm going to relate to you. How am I going to relate to you? You pray, I answer. You pray, you bear fruit, you see? You abide in me, I abide in you. We live together in love. Well, there's lots more. Let's pray, Father. I pray for us that we get it. Pray for me that I'd get it. That I would understand that I would abide in you. That your words would abide in me. That I would abide in your love, that I would obey your commandments because I love you. And that God, that as I pray, I pray to bear fruits. Fruit that will last. So please, I pray for us. That you would cause us individually and as a church to bear fruit. 
that we would see in us the love of Christ and that we, we would love as he has loved us and we would see in the midst of our church disciples being made and that this fruit, these disciples, would last. And this, I pray, in Jesus' name.